Hi, this is Ben Zorns of the Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Song of the Idiot, a.k.a. The Song of the Redeemed. While the world esteems wealth, prestige, fame, power, influence, intelligence, the church must value just one thing, Jesus. We know it will look utterly foolish, idiotic, and preposterous to spend ourselves upon Him, but this is the focal point of every true believer. As Oswald Chambers used to say, Jesus ever, Jesus only. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The Song of the Idiot. I, there's an AK also known as the Song of the Redeemed. We would prefer to call it the Song of the Redeemed. However, I want you to realize the song that we sing is an idiot's song to this world. They literally detest it. They look at it with a snarl. They look at it and hold it in contempt with mockery. And most of us want to shy away from such a thing that would lead us to appear lacking in intelligence to this world. Paul deliberately went out of his way knowing full well that this was God's means. God chose the foolish things. This is his method. And so therefore we as Christians don't argue it. We just say, thank you, Lord Jesus, and I am willing to be such a fool. And the, world, the word I'm going to introduce you to this week is idiotes. Does that sound familiar? Idiotes. I could just give the first half of it. Idiotes. Uh-huh. Welcome to the message of Paul. <clears throat> but we can focus on the song of the redeemed. That sounds a little more nice, doesn't it? 2 Corinthians 11. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy... Remember last week we talked about Paul writing a letter to the Corinthian church because they had contentions among them. Well, this is 2 Corinthians, okay? He needed to write back. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. A chaste virgin. virgin, One who is untouched by any other partner. You are singular. You belong to Jesus, to one husband. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity, and I gave you a better definition of simplicity, in that singularity of focus that is in Christ. This is our entire message from last week. Paul is fearful, lest by any means the serpent who beguiled Eve through his subtlety should also do the same to us and should corrupt our singularity of focus on Jesus Christ. What are we about? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You know, there's a thousand debates in Christianity today. There's a thousand things to get you off center. We mentioned quite a few of them last week. You want to start focusing on soteriology? You want to start focusing on eschatology? You want to start focusing on baptism? You want to start focusing on Sabbath? You want to start focusing on head covering? You want to start focusing on tongues? We have a lot of issues that would split this group right down the middle. I could have picked any one of those, stopped, and said, Okay, let's have everyone raise their hand, and let's give argument for either side. And we could suddenly have hot debate in the middle of this room. See, most churches are denominationally centered. In other words, they've already congregated based on a similar viewpoint. What my encouragement is, and if I'm going to use the word of Paul, is to beseech you, brethren... With all your differences, you can agree. 
You believe the word of God is the word of God, then stand on what it says. What is the North Star in the word of God? Jesus. What event summarizes everything that Jesus came to do and out of which everything that he came to accomplish will be seen? The cross. Jesus and him crucified. This is our center point. Let's not lose this singularity of focus in Christ Jesus. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So if you baked Paul down to the most rudimentary dimension of who he is, and he has to let it all go except for one thing, what is he going to hold on to and what message would he give? It's the same message we as the church of Jesus Christ in this generation must give. Jesus Christ and him crucified. What must I do to be saved? Seven really smart-sounding wrong answers. First, saved by understanding how God saves. Okay, don't look at any of the other things on the list. Okay, you're going to have to just ignore those. I want you to stay focused here. Saved by understanding how God saves. We could call this the salvation scientist. The person who understands the inner workings of how salvation works. There are massive debates over this for thousands of years, if you will, on the issues of how salvation works. I'm interested in people getting saved. Sort of like my car, all I want to know is that it works. I don't necessarily need to know auto mechanics to get it going down the street. I need to know how to turn the key, stick it into gear, and put my foot on the gas. Cars are supposed to move. They're not necessarily supposed to be deeply understood. However, we do need mechanics. But when it comes to the issues of salvation, it's not knowing how salvation works that gets you saved. It's Jesus that gets you saved. It's faith in him, knowing that he is your salvation. It's that simple. Two, that you are saved by standing against those who think they are saved by understanding how God saves. Okay, now follow me on this. You have this group over here that is saved by, in a sense, their understanding or their knowledge of how salvation works. That isn't what saves you. And then you have the other camp over here that says, oh, can you believe these people? They think they're saved by what they know. They think they're saved, and they think that God is pleased with them based on the fact that they understand all the details about this. And so guess what? They think they're saved, this is the new group, by the fact that they're not like them. So it's ignorance on this side. It's knowledge on this side. You're not saved by either of those. You are not saved by standing against those who think they are saved by understanding how God saves. The self-righteous. In other words, I am not like them. I am not like those that are distracted. Well, guess what? You might not like, be like those that are distracted. You might not be intelligent about your Christianity. However, you're still needing to be saved by Jesus. There's still only one means of salvation. Now, what this list is, by the way, don't take any peeks. I saw some of you look down the list. Uh, what this list is, is what most of us would say, well, absolutely. I wouldn't ever think that. However, many of us have interwoven some of these aspects into our confidence before the throne. Into our confidence at the judgment day. When you stand at the judgment day, what do you plea? What is your answer? Should you be turned away or should you be accepted? Should you be acquitted from your sin? Or should you be damned for it? Which one? What's your plea? If you don't have a plea, you need Jesus. However, if your plea is anything on this list, 
Well, Jesus, I know all about how salvation works. That doesn't stand in that day. Or, hey, I'm not like them. I didn't think it was about how salvation worked. Your plea must be Jesus. I know Jesus. I have Jesus. I'm found in Jesus. I believed in Jesus. Your answer is Jesus. In his cross work, that is where your hope lies. Three, saved by having extensive knowledge on issues pertaining to the Savior. You could know all about eschatology. You could know all about, you know, all the scripture. You could be an Awanus brainiac or a catechism champion. That does not save you. You could know all the, the scripture memorized. And it doesn't save you. Isn't that an extraordinary reality? It does not mean that knowing the scripture is harmful. It's not what saves you. And so if you were leaning on that and putting any confidence in anything outside of Jesus and his cross work, you are misled. And, the Satan, and Satan, the serpent, is beguiling you. With his craftiness, he is taking you over here saying you can find confidence somewhere else other than Jesus. Four, saved by religious actions. The sacramentalist. Now, there's all sorts of different versions of this, but a lot of Christians, they have their two-point list. It's like, okay, what do I need to do here? And they see that they're supposed to be baptized, and they see that they're supposed to have communion. So they do those two things, and then they go on their merry way. And what their plea is before the throne is, well, uh, I was baptized and I took communion. They are doing something in their own strength. It's their own work. It's their own action. You see, communion and baptism has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him. He did the work. You are merely remembering and cherishing and binding in covenant with it by faith. You could go underwater and come back up. That doesn't save you. Boy, I could create some contention just on that point, but I'll stand on it. It's a fact. Water doesn't save you. Jesus does. You could take some bread and some wine. Guess what? That won't save you. You know what saves you? Jesus saves you. There is only one thing that saves you. So if you're leaning on the sacraments as your means of salvation before the throne, you will fail in that day. You will fall short. Your plea is Jesus. And the reason we're baptized is as a statement to the world that we have been baptized in Christ's death 2,000 years ago. Who died? He did. It was his work on that cross that saves us. It is our faith merely taken and saying, I have no idea why you think of me. But I say thank you. That work was done on my behalf. Saved by proximity. If you're close enough to a church, if you're close enough to other people that are really strong believers, then you're fine. You were born into a really strong Christian family who prays all the time and sings worship songs. And they know the, the scriptures. Your, your proximity will save you. I mean, when the judgment comes, you know, all you need to do is stand close to them. Is that what saves you? You will stand alone before the judgment seat. Do not make any appeal based on the fact that you had good church attendance. That means nothing at the judgment day. There is one thing that matters at the judgment day, and that's Jesus Christ. You have no righteousness of your own. And no matter how many good deeds you do, no matter how many times you go to church, you do not have what it will take to enter into the holy presence of Almighty God. He has what it takes. It's His righteousness that you must be clothed in. You must be found in Him. Six, saved by what I didn't do. This is a fascinating one. And many of us have woven this into our confidence. 
the moralist. The moralist is the one who looks at all the people in the world that are, you know, just going to hell in a handbasket and says, but you know what? I've never touched a drop of alcohol in my life. I've actually never cussed in my entire life. By the way, if you're leaning on what you haven't done to save you, you will fail and you will fall short at the day of judgment. It is what he has done that saves you, not what you haven't done. I'm very happy for you that you haven't touched a drop of alcohol and that you haven't cussed. I'm sure you're better off for it. But that isn't what saves you. Your morality is not what will save you. It was his life that saves. Your confidence must be in that, not in your morality. However, when God saves you, when God rescues you, when God clothes you, you know what he does? He changes you. So suddenly you do have action to your spiritual life that does resemble Jesus Christ. But that action isn't what saves you. It's the natural byproduct and result of being saved. You are saved by Jesus Christ. Number seven, saved by human goodness and compassion. The humanitarian. You could do all the great things. You could be marked by compassion. You could be the ultimate bleeding heart. And that will not save you on that day. You need Jesus. By the way, and I'll make this clear for any of you that are visiting, we are not humanitarians here. We are Christians. I know that sounds like a funny statement. Humanitarianism is the binding together of mankind, humankind, to say without God, we can save the world. And I say, without God, we die. We need God, and that's why we're Christians. We're still marked by compassion, but it's heavenly compassion. We're still marked by caring for the least, but we do it for his glory, not for the glory of men. Okay, so if any of you are holding on to any of those as your confidences, it's time to throw them overboard. Paul said, I consider all these things that I could appeal before God as dung. Throw it overboard. Paul did. He says, I have no confidence in any of these things. All these things that I did or didn't do. It has nothing to do with that. My confidence rests in Jesus. So, my encouragement to you, put your confidence in Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. Always. As Christians, our enemies can strip us of everything. Our Bibles, our church fellowship, our Christian radio, our Christian books, our comforts and earthly securities. They could freeze our financial accounts and plunder our every earthly possession. They could take us from our families, stick us in a dank black prison chamber, and even remove every singular earthly pleasure from our life. But there is one thing that they cannot touch. They cannot take and they cannot obstruct. And that one thing is our everything. You guys know what that one thing is? It goes by the name of Jesus. You know what the enemy cannot take it from you? He cannot separate you from your Jesus. The world can take everything. They can plunder our lives. But if you find any scrap of confidence in anything the enemy can take, you will fail and falter. You find your confidence in what the enemy can't take. And you will never be shaken. The foolish things. This is sort of a review of last week when Paul's going through the list in 1 Corinthians 1. But listen to his... In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he makes this statement. We are fools for Christ's sake. His glory. For Christ's glory. For Christ's sake that he would be seen. We are willing to be the fool. These are all the foolish things that Paul describes in Corinthians. Christ crucified, 
which is considered a stumbling block or foolishness. The gospel, which is called the foolishness of God. The things of the Spirit of God, they are foolishness to natural man. Preaching, which is foolishness. And the preacher, which in this case was him. He was described as weak, contemptible, and unskilled, a.k.a. foolish. What kind of plan is this for God to bring about his truth in this earth? doesn't seem right. You see, our singularity of focus seems like idiocy to the world. You see, Paul deliberately, Paul knows a lot, as is proven in all of his letters. He knows a lot. His knowledge was not faltering. However, he deliberately chose to allow God to use him as a vessel that looked foolish. Now, you could ask, why is it that Paul, over and over again, I think it four times in Corinthians, he makes a statement that I did not come to you with excellency of speech. I did not come to you in the wisdom of this world's mechanism of delivering a message or a sermon. He keeps saying it over and over again. Why does he keep talking about this? And why was it that he looked, that he would have, his speech would have been considered contemptible? That's just a funny statement. One of the hypotheses that we could build on, which is just a hypothesis, it's not a doctrinal platform of any kind, but remember Paul was stoned? And, and I think I've described to you guys that when someone is stoned, you don't just throw a pebble at their foot. You knock them down and crush their head with large rocks. Your goal is to snuff the life out of them and to do it in a very, very strong and forceful way. So Paul's head would have been smashed. So imagine what the, this man supposedly, even in Christian history, was a very short man. Big Jewish nose. Okay, and bald. Right? That's Paul. Okay, so he had one of these little uh, uh, circles on the top of his head that was baldness, not necessarily one of those Jewish skullcaps. And, uh, and so here's, here's Paul. Not maybe the best-looking guy to start with, but then his head gets smashed in. And, Paul, and God goes, now I've got my messenger. This is exactly what I was looking for. A guy who can hardly speak. Isn't that an interesting statement? Who did God bring his great message through? He brought him through, he brought it through a man known as Paul, who we've always esteemed, we always see as this giant. But I want you to realize the description of him is actually that he wasn't that impressive. He had all the knowledge stored within him. He had the substance of the Spirit of God. But his message was not in the excellency of delivery. It was in the power of God. Paul, his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible, as it says in 2 Corinthians 10. The word that I want to introduce you to is idiotes. And that's actually how it's pronounced, too. Idiotes. Uh, seemingly unlearned. Appearing unskilled and lacking intelligence. Is that Paul? Well, you've got to be kidding. Don't accuse Paul of being that. That's the word that he uses. He uses it. But though I be idiotes in speech, though I may appear to you to be unskilled and unlearned. And he goes on after this and makes a statement, but not in knowledge. See, I have the knowledge, but whatever God has done in the package known as Paul, there was a limitation. There was a limp. And it didn't make it look too impressive. Are you willing to allow God to give you a limp? so that you can deliver the goods of Jesus Christ most effectively in this generation. Remember the name of this message? The Song of the Idiot. 
This world outside, I had this guy uh, just yesterday that I was uh, talking to. And he was criticizing Christianity. He said, I came to a church once. I mean, I just was sitting there listening to them sing. And I was like, what a joke. These people have no clue what reality even is. Hmm, that fit well. Uh, the Song of the Idiot. I already had my title. The Song of the Idiot. The world doesn't understand. They don't even see God. And here we are singing to him. Here we are loving him. Here we are crying. Here we are down on our knees, raising our hands. What's wrong with us? We see something this world doesn't see. And though through their lens we may appear to be idiotes, this is the song of the redeemed. And this is God's chosen method to win the lost. I didn't choose it. If you were asking me, I would have come up with a far more polished way. Leave it to man, natural man, would do everything different than God does because we are not like God. God has a smirk on his face. And he says, no, no, that's not my way. Here's my way. Smashed-headed Paul. Short, little, diddly squat Paul. Speech contemptible. Idiotes in its sound. And, and God goes, that's my man. This is the man I will build the church on. Write most of the entire New Testament through. There's my vessel. Who prepared the way of God throughout the ages? The prophets. The prophets were idiotes. Look at how they dressed. Look at how they ate. Look at how they lived. Look at John the Baptist. Idiotes. Can you say it with me? Idiotes. It's a little camel skin loincloth and locust and wild honey. Long scraggly hair. Repent. Who's the messenger for Jesus? That. Who's the messenger for Jesus today? That. At least that's what it looks like. Jesus, did he see a scraggly, uh, weird idiot in John the Baptist? No, he says, that's the greatest of men. See, through the lens of heaven, you see greatness. You see strength. You see everything that has power to change the earth. It's the church of Jesus Christ. But through the lens of this world, they see Idiotes. Idiots. I came to you not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. For Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. That is an incredible statement that I've had to wrestle with. Not with the wisdom of words. It's actually the exact same statement in reverse to when Paul says, idiotes of speech. Idiotes of logos. This is wisdom of logos. Manly, natural wisdom of logos. The speech that you give. Paul says, I've deliberately chosen this method. God has chosen it in and through me that I would be even an idiot unto this world. And I did not come with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, that no flesh should glory in his presence. There's our conclusion of why. We can't get the credit. Paul, if you know who Paul is, and if you were able to watch Paul, you might not be as impressed. You're impressed with his letters, but his physical presence might not have impressed you. However, those of us that are spiritually discerning would say, God's brilliant. And we would look at Paul and see his confidence even though his face might be smashed. 
and to see him bring the truth of God to bear it untiringly and unceasingly do it. And we'd say, that's a man of God. The idiots worship. Then Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus. You'll notice that this is three different accounts that I've combined together. And wiped his feet with her hair. So Jesus is sitting at the table eating. And Mary, Mary of Bethany, takes a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly. Other translations or other accounts in the gospel say it was worth a year's wages. This is a ton of money to buy this ointment. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? When his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? What is the statement? In every three of those situations, they said, This is a waste. And they responded with indignation. Do not waste your life, they say, on Jesus. And what does Jesus say? This is the gospel. It may appear to this world that it is a waste of a human life. You may appear idiotes in your devotion unto God to pour out all you are in his feet. But that is the sweet smelling fragrance before the throne of heaven. Pour out your life, dear Christians. Pour it out as Mary poured out her spikenard. And that is the idiot's worship. Solimo and Solima. Solimo and his Solima. Now, for those of you that are Ellerslie students, you know what this is. For those of you that aren't, you're going, what in the world's that? Solimo would be like the Hebrew version for Solomon, King Solomon. And his Solima, where does that come from? Listen to uh, this. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that they may look upon thee. That's what it says in the Song of Solomon, in the King James Version at least. And listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. The translation of the word Shulamite is unhappy. It is unmusical and misses the meaning. The Hebrew word is a feminine of Solomon. Solomon may stand for the bridegroom's name, and then the well-beloved bride takes her husband's name in a feminine form of it, which is Shulamith, Salome, or perhaps better, Solima. The king has named his name upon her. And as Caius has his Kaya, so Solomon has his Solima. He is the prince of peace, and she is the daughter of peace. Aforetime she was called the fairest among women, but now she is a spouse unto her Lord and has a fullness of peace. Therefore is she called the peace laden or the peace crowned. You know how truly it is so with the justified in Christ Jesus. Because the sound is sweeter and the sense is clear. Permit me to read the text thus. Return, return, O Sulima. Return, return, that we may look upon thee. And so I'm introducing a concept to you because I'm going to build upon it. You're going to notice, any of you that are familiar with uh, Elijah, you're going to notice all sorts of interesting overlaps of different messages all combined together here. This is one big adoration of Jesus Christ. One of the things I want you to realize is one of the most intimate pictures of Christ and his bride is in the Song of Solomon. And Solima is us. It is her worship. And so what, what I have is I have three little clips of her worship and her adoration of her beloved in Song of Solomon. I take out the little clip and then I make a comment on it, which is just simply worship. Okay? And so that's what I want to start with uh, this. Salima's worship, part one. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. Does that sound familiar? This is Old Testament, fulfilled in the new. 
who pours out their spikenard? Just Mary of Bethany, the bride of Christ. The adoring Salima, the one who has taken on his name. He's Solomon. We're Solima. We actually are the feminine of his name. We represent him. Who's the one that pours out the spikenard? When the king sits at his table. It's us. So are you ready to pour out some spikenard? Solima says, You come to dine with the lowly. You grace with thy holy presence the stable of Bethlehem, the camp of the leper, and the house of the sinner. And now you enter my dwelling, O condescending king. You knock upon my door of earthly coldness and offer to bring upon me thy heavenly warmth. Please, dear Solimo, I dare not decline thy sweet mercies. Please come to my table and sit with me. My house is thine, forever and always thine. Live here, take my bed as thy own. Take my couch as thy place of recline. Stoke my fire with thy sacred oil and eat of the entirety of my pantry. Sit, sit, dear Lord. Sit here and allow me to worship at thy feet. Allow me to pour out upon thy head and thy feet my most precious holdings. This box of spikenard, my most precious possession, I empty upon thee. And if there be more of value in this house, I pray I find it. For I wish to pour it out as well. May you be the depository of my life, the sacred vault of my every jewel. And may I pour all I am and all I have into thee. May I be in you as you are in me. And please, dear, dear King of sweet mercies, may I one day dine at thy banqueting table and share in the eternal feast of thy person in thy heavenly home. Who is this Jesus? For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. This is God. Not just a mere man. Not a created being. God eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It actually says in John 1 that this very Word created the heavens and the earth. And the Word was made flesh. This very God dwelt among us. And Jesus himself says, I and my Father are one. To the Jew, blasphemy. Because they didn't recognize their Messiah. A veil hung over their face because they expected a strong champion. They expected one to come in in all the wisdom of the Greeks. And to put down the Roman Empire. Instead he came. As idiotes. And they refused to accept that their Messiah could die. That's not him. Is he worthy of our spikenard? 31 reasons why the answer is yes. There's a test in the Old Testament. At Ellerslie we call it the canon test. The Messiah test. The Messiah would come. The Hebrew that believed in their God and believed his promises knew that the Messiah was coming. And when he came, he had to look a precise way. And if he didn't, he would be considered false. A false Messiah. And according to the dictates of the Old Covenant, they could stone him for falsely representing the person of God and the Messiah. Because he was a false prophet. But is this Jesus worthy of our spikenard? When he reclines at the table, is he worthy of our lives? Because if the answer is yes, 
you cannot hold on to your spike nard. He must prove the Son of God. And what you see, and you'll have these notes available to you when this comes out online, but in the Old Testament, you have the, the prophecy in Psalm 2, and then you have the fulfillment as revealed in Luke 1. But he must prove the Son of God. Did he? Absolutely. Conceived of by the Holy Spirit. He must prove the seed of a woman. He couldn't just be born of the Holy Spirit. He had to be born of a woman. He had to literally be in a womb and be born of a virgin. He must prove the seed of Abraham. He couldn't come from just anywhere. He had to come from the descendancy of Abraham. But then not just Abraham, because Abraham had two children. He must come from the descendancy of Isaac, and he must prove the seed of Isaac. He must prove the seed of David, not just the seed of Isaac. Isaac and then had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. One of those sons was named Judah. In the descendancy of Judah, you have David. He must be of the seed of David. He must be born of a virgin. He must be Emmanuel, God with us. And he must be born in Bethlehem, Judea, the birthplace of David. It has to happen. If he's not born in Bethlehem, he is not the Messiah. And guess what? Mary and Joseph didn't even live in Bethlehem. They came from Nazareth. But a census was decreed. And Mary, who is great with child at the time of the census, has to somehow make it to Bethlehem. And when she's in Bethlehem, she gives birth to a son. Is this a big deal? You better believe it. It's a big deal. It's the proof of his godhood, his messiahship. He is the one we bow down and worship and pour out our spike nard on. Kings must fall down before him offering gifts. He must be called out of Egypt. How does one whose parents are from Nazareth? This isn't the age of railroads. This isn't the age of uh, flight. The age of travel on donkeys when you're poor. They has to come out of Egypt. And guess what? He does. Elijah must come before him. A messenger that must prepare the way must come before him. He must be anointed with the Spirit. His ministry must commence in Galilee. His ministry cannot start in any other place. Otherwise, he's false. Study your scripture. You'll be amazed. He must enter Jerusalem riding upon a colt. He must be undesirable to many. Idiotes. He must be meek. He must be without guile. He must be consumed with zeal for God's house as he picks up a whip and enters it and turns over the money changers' tables. He must bear the reproach. He must be betrayed by a friend. The sheep must be scattered. He must be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And the potter's field must be purchased with the money. He is betrayed by a friend. And Judas literally comes before the priests. And sells out Jesus for what? 30 pieces of silver. And then he is smote to the heart. Judas returns, throws down the money. Says, take it back. They say, we will not take it back. Your conscience is your conscience. You deal with that. And what do they do with what they called blood money? They couldn't put it in the treasury, so they bought something with it. They bought the potter's field. He must be numbered with the criminals. He could not die alone. He had to have others to make it plural. He had to be numbered amongst criminals. He must go silently as a lamb unto slaughter. He must make intercession for his murderers. Lots must be cast for his clothing. 
He must die. His bones must not be broken. He must be pierced. He must rise again from the dead. He must ascend and he must sit at the right hand of God. Who is this? Who is this Messiah? I love this Messiah. I know this Messiah. He's God Almighty. He rules in my life. And my spike guard has been broken out. He's deserving of our entirety, our worship, our adoration. He has done it. It's called the root and the offspring of David. He starts this entire world. He builds a nation in and amongst this world known as Israel. And he entrusts his promises to it, this very Messiah test to it. And he says, watch, one day the Messiah will come. And who comes? He does. He dons our humanity and is born as a little fetus. He starts out within the womb of a little girl. This is extraordinary. What kind of plan is this? He came as the idiot to this world. He was found undesirable by many. That's not him. They refused him. I don't know what the guy looked like. But supposedly he had nothing in his form or in his beauty that we should desire him. That doesn't fit my grid any more than the description of Paul that I gave you fits my grid. Now we accept that John the Baptist looked funny. But we have a tough time accepting that Christians, the ones that have represented the kingdom, would look funny or odd. God has chosen the foolish things. This is his method and it's his chosen method. We don't want to look foolish. But I want you to know, if you want to represent your king well, you accept the call. They mock us, they ridicule us, they falsely accuse us, they crucify us. We rejoice. The disciples, or I could call them the apostles when Jesus ascended, what was the first thing that happened? Tongues of fire come down upon them on the day of Pentecost. And what are they doing? Sounding like idiotes running around Jerusalem. These guys are drunk. How did the whole thing start? With idiocy. And guess what? Were they drunk? Drunk with the Spirit, maybe. God had gotten a hold of his saints. And he made them the classic picture of idiotes. And guess what? 3,000 came into the church that day. We want Christianity on our terms. But I want you to realize God's terms don't change. I don't like it any more than you do in the natural man. I want to come across as polished and I want to look together. But I want you to realize this is our king. And whatever it costs us, he gets what he deserves from his church. The word of God made flesh. The word of God in letter is now the word of God in life. The word of God in law is now the word of God in spirit and truth. The word of God in proverb is now the word of God in person. The entirety of the Old Testament, the word of God, has been made flesh in Jesus Christ. What was once only letter is now life. What was once law is now the spirit of God. What was once proverb and wisdom in idea and text is now wisdom in very person. You want wisdom? You find it in Jesus Christ. Nowhere else will you find wisdom. Jesus is the law of God become flesh. Jesus is the sacrifices, the feast, the Sabbath, the jubilee, and the tabernacle temple become flesh. Jesus is the wisdom of God become flesh. 
Jesus is the prophecy of God become flesh. Jesus is the history of Israel become flesh. In other words, Jesus is the word of God become flesh. You love your Bible? I don't blame you. I'd give up my life to defend every little jot and tittle within that Bible because that is what testifies of our Jesus. The way we treat the word of God in text is the way we're treating the word of God in person. That's why we protect it. But the word of God in text is merely a map to lead us to the true treasure, and that's Jesus Christ. Why we lay down our lives for the text is because it is the enunciation of the person. And the person is what this is all about. Everything is summed up in Jesus. Jesus is the manifold revelation of the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. Jesus is El Elyon, the Most High God. Jesus is Adonai, Lord Master. Jesus is Yahweh, Lord Jehovah. Jesus is Jehovah Nisi, the Lord my banner, the Lord my miracle. Jesus is Jehovah Ra, the Lord my shepherd. Jesus is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Jesus is Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Jesus is Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Jesus is Jehovah Makidashem, the Lord who sanctifies you, the Lord who makes you holy. Jesus is El Olam, the everlasting God, the God of eternity, the God of the universe, the God of ancient days. Jesus is Elohim, God, judge, creator. Jesus is Kana, jealous. Jesus is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jesus is Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Jesus is Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of powers. Salima's worship part two. In Song of Solomon, it says this, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He is looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. And Salima says in response to this reality of who he is, Hush, O my soul, for my lover speaks. May I not miss even a syllable of his sweet mercies spoken. May I not miss even the hindmost piece of one of his phrases of love. Oh, how desperately I long for him, for his voice, for his powerful person. Behold, he is majestic and crowned with strength and might. He is my hero, my champion, my salvation. He charges the thunderous mountains of his holiness and climbs them as the most skillful stag and dances upon their highest cliffs like a fearless gazelle. He has conquered the teeming and boiling wrath of the holy mountain and has brought it under his submission. He has tamed it and calmed its fiery and seething storm. It bows down to his prancing hind feet. It lies low beneath his triumph. He is the master of the high places and he desires to take me there. Hush, O my soul, for my lover speaks. He is at my window. Quick, I must open it, that his grace might light my temple. O sweet Solomon, you beckon me with thy sweet love. You woo me with thy regal smile. You love me, O prince of perfection. You love me. How should we treat this king? What I'm going to walk you through is what the Bible actually says about how we are to treat the word of God. And so, by natural expression of the word of God being made flesh, our conclusion is the way we are to treat the word of God in text is the way we're also supposed to treat the word of God in person. And so what you'll see is you'll see, I have a statement at the top that says the word of God in text and then the word of God made flesh and how we're supposed to handle both. And you'll have the scripture with the word of God in text. So the word of God in text, we are to tremble at it, as it says in Isaiah 66. So the word of God made flesh, Jesus, tremble before him. The word of God in text, we are to receive it with all readiness and search it daily. But what about the word of God made flesh? 
We're to receive him with all readiness and search his heart and mind daily in order to serve him better and love him more. The word of God in text, we're to receive it in much affliction. But the word of God made flesh, Jesus, we are to receive him in much affliction. The word of God in text, we are to receive it as it is in truth, the word of God. The word of God made flesh, we are to receive him as he is in truth, God himself. The word of God in text, we are to receive it gladly. The word of God made flesh, we are to receive him gladly. The word of God in text, we are to keep it, follow it, bend to it, and revere it. The word of God made flesh, we are to keep him in the center of our heart, follow him, bend to his ways, and revere him. The word of God in text, we are to treat it as precious. The word of God made flesh, we are to treat him as precious. The word of God in text, we are to let it always reside on our tongue. The word of God made flesh, we are to let the singular message of Jesus and him crucified always reside on our tongue. The word of God in text, we are to let it perform that which it promises. Let it build the temple, let it be verified in our life, and let it bring us the rest of God. The word of God made flesh, we are to let him perform that which he promises. Let him build us into his temple, and let him be verified in our life, and let him bring us the rest of God. The word of God in text, we are to conform to its pattern for carrying the holy presence of God. The word of God made flesh. We are to bear the holy presence of God in the same manner he did. The word of God in text, we are to be always mindful of it, abide in its reality, live in the shadow of its sublime truth. But the word of God made flesh, Jesus, we are to be always mindful of him, abide in him, and live in the shadow of his wings. The word of God in text, we are to praise it and trust it. The word of God made flesh, we are to praise him and trust him. The word of God in text, we are to publish it. The word of God made flesh, we are to publish his life by demonstrating his power at work in us. The word of God in text, we are to listen to it and heed its every utterance. The word of God made flesh, we are to listen to his voice and heed his every utterance. The word of God in text, we are to allow it to try our soul and purify our heart and prune our life. The word of God made flesh, we are to allow him to try our soul, purify our heart and prune our life. The word of God in text, we are to hide it in our heart, cherish it in our innermost being, protect it as our most sacred possession. The word of God made flesh, we are to hide him in our heart, cherish him in our innermost being, protect him as our most sacred possession. The word of God in text, we are to never forget it. The word of God made flesh, Jesus, we are never to forget him. The word of God in text, we are to be quickened by its power, its grace, its majesty. The word of God made flesh, we are to be quickened by his power, his grace, and his majesty. The word of God in text, we are to allow it to be our strength. How about the word of God made flesh, Jesus? We are to allow him to be our strength. The word of God in text, we are to trust in it. What about the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ? We are to trust in him. The word of God in text, we are to hope in it. But what about the word of God made flesh? We are to hope in him. The word of God in text, we are to love it and delight in its purity. The word of God made flesh, we are to love him and delight in his purity. The word of God in text, we are to meditate on it. The word of God made flesh, we are to meditate on him. The word of God in text, we are to let it be the joy and the rejoicing of our heart. The word of God made flesh, we are to let him be the joy and rejoicing of our heart. The word of God in text, we are to let it be our sustenance, the food of our soul and the life of our being. 
The word of God made flesh. We are to let him be our sustenance, the food of our soul, and the life of our being. This perfect, holy Jesus shed his blood for me. I wish we could be staggered at such a thought. We have dull understanding in this world. We so much easier can believe what the world testifies than we can what the Word of God testifies. And most of us know full well that Jesus died for us. But do we realize He was God? Do we realize He was the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament? That He literally came down and condescended from His throne on high and didn't just take a position of a servant, but took the lowest place and died as a criminal being seen as an idiot in this world's eyes. He was silent when they mocked him. And with one breath, he could lay them to waste. And he condescended to do this for us. How can we see this, Jesus? How can we behold this reality? This perfect, holy Jesus shed his blood for us. For atonement and for propitiation, a just and satisfying offering in my stead for my justification from sin, for the forgiveness of my sins, for the remission of my sins. And I want you to stick yourself in this. It wasn't just for Eric. This was for you, for your atonement and propitiation, because there was a penalty against you. And God is a just God. And that sin needs to be atoned for. There needs to be a satisfying and just offering in its stead. And who was that just offering? It was Jesus And his shed blood has done the work for you. Your justification, the legal clearing of your guilt. For the forgiveness of your sins and mine. For the remission of your sins and mine. The literal removal. For the cleansing and washing from all sin. You tired of carrying that blemish around? The blood of Jesus washes us clean. For the purging of my conscience and yours. No more guilt. You do not need to be weighted down by the enemy's accusations against you. For my peace and yours. For my reconciliation unto Christ and your reconciliation unto Christ. For righteousness. For we have no righteousness of our own. To gain us merit into his presence. But for righteousness he died. That we might be clothed in his. For the purpose of saving me from the wrath that will come for the destruction of the devil, for overcoming the devil, for redemption, eternal redemption, for the purchase of my very being, for the purpose of giving me life within, eternal life, for the bringing back to life, for my sanctification, he literally makes us as he is, for my spiritual and physical healing, for boldness to enter into the holy of holies, the very presence of God, For the purpose of enabling me to make my daily, hourly, minute-by-minute home in Christ Jesus. You can live in Christ Jesus. Every minute of every day for all of eternity. Do you want that? Do you desire? You may be deemed an idiot, an idiotes, but you have him. I can be found in him. Listen to this little collection. I, I have a message called In Christ. This isn't that message. This is in whom. Just a quick study on in whom, which is Jesus. In whom is this. When you are in him, this is what comes out of it. This is just 
In whom? In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. In whom we were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. In whom you also were built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Your old man is crucified. That old controlling disposition of sin no longer has rulership over you. But you have to be in him to find the merits and the beauty of that. In whom you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. When upon this earth, our Jesus was obedient, meek, lowly, guileless, tempted, oppressed, despised, rejected, betrayed, condemned, reviled, scourged, mocked, wounded, bruised, stricken, smitten, crucified, forsaken. But through it all, he is still merciful, faithful, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate, perfect, glorious, mighty, justified, exalted, risen glorified. And he is my portion, my maker, my husband, my well-beloved, my savior, my hope, my brother, my helper, my physician, my healer, my refiner, my purifier, my Lord, master, my servant, my example, my teacher, my shepherd, my keeper, my feeder, my leader, my restorer, my resting place, my meat, my drink, my Passover, my peace, my wisdom, my righteousness, my sanctification, my redemption, my all in all. Salima's Worship, Part 3. In the Song of Solomon, Chapter 5, Salima is describing her, her beloved. She says, My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the river of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as a cedar's. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Salima, thou art perfect, utterly perfect in thy fine beauty. You shine with the sparkle of the purest purity, with the luster of the holiest holiness. You bear the glow of the loveliest lovely, the sweetest sweetness and the most fragrant fragrance. There is none like thee. The world with all its glories combined, knit together into one composite beauty, would still pale in the light of thy hallowed majesty. You shimmer with the greatest greatness, the strongest strength, the most regal regality, the most precious preciousness. You are the mightiest mighty, the most magnificent magnificent, the most powerful power, the most truthful truth, the most handsome handsome, the finest fine and the most excellent excellence. Thy beauty is above the strength of human language to express. It is beyond the word grandeur, beyond the word splendor, and it is beyond the word awesome. Thou, O heroic hero of my soul, Art everything that is perfect, good, and lovely are brought, all brought together into one glorious bundle of the most fragrant myrrh. 
the Lord, this bundle of myrrh lies with sacred constancy upon my adoring heart. Jesus. As Christians, our enemies can strip us of everything. Our Bibles, our church fellowship, our Christian radio, our Christian books, our comforts, and earthly securities. They could freeze our financial accounts and plunder our every earthly possession. They could take us from our families, stick us in a dank black prison chamber, and even remove every, every singular earthly pleasure from our life. But there is one thing that they cannot touch, they cannot take, and they could not obstruct. And that one thing is our everything. His name is Jesus. That's our great song. We have a reason to sing, Church of Jesus Christ. Whether you feel it at this moment or not, there's a reason. And it's a reason that will cause us for all eternity to bow down and worship. Even those that stand before his throne now fall down and cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then if there is any reprieve from this worship, they rise up and once again they behold his grandeur and his holiness and they fall freshly out on their faces and cry out again, Holy, 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 throughout all eternity. Let's get some practice in. For we have a God who is worthy to receive all glory, power, dominion, praise, and adoration. His name is Jesus. And if you're the saint of God, you have him. You have everything that he has ever offered. The full inheritance of his presence is made available to us. Why would we shy away from it? Who cares if this world calls us idiots? And they consider our song the song of the idiot. So be it. Christianity used to be called the way. And then in mocking disdain, they begin to call us Christians. In mocking disdain, they may call us the idiots. And that may be our name. We may go proudly by it. Yes, we're idiots. Yeah, we have a gathering of idiots uh, this evening over at the church. Oh, sure, I'm proud to be called an idiot. Are you? I side with Jesus. Against all that hold him in contempt, I side with Jesus. I stand at that bloody cross when all around are reviling and mocking. Stick my finger in the air, and I say, I'm, <clears throat> I'm with him. I'm with him. He may look weak right now on this earth, but he's anything but. Wait and see what our God will do. Let's practice before the throne of God right now, giving him his due. If you need to get on your face, get on your face. You need to stand up, stand up. If you need to get on your knees, get on your knees. If you can do it seated there, that's fine. Just make sure that your heart is expressing with full adoration to our God. He is worthy. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. 
If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.